This morning's message is from Mark chapter 5. I know we read this morning James chapter 1. You'll see how it relates, hopefully. If I do my job as a communicator, you'll see how it works. But uh, Mark chapter 5, we're going to cover the whole chapter, so you're going to have to listen fast. <laughs> title of our message from Mark 5 is The Rescuing King. Now, there's a reason, and I hope that you will see this as we move through the message, why chapter 5, the miracles that are there, belong together. There's three miracles the, the, second to, uh, the second and the third are entwined together. The first one is the, the miracle of the demoniac on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and his uh, deliverance. And the second and the third are the woman with the hemorrhage and Jairus' daughter. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But I, I want you to think back, just uh, uh, move uh, scroll If you're on a tablet, scroll up a little bit or maybe look across the page uh, to chapter 4 and you'll find the stilling of the storm. Do you remember that? The end of the stilling of the storm story, chapter 4 verse 41 says, They became very much afraid and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the focus of chapter 5 then becomes the answer to this question, who then is this? And now Mark has moved from Ernest Hemingway to Charles Dickens in terms of the number of words he's going to use. If you've ever read any Ernest Hemingway, you'll know what I'm talking about. Very laconic. And yet now in chapter 5, he's going to move to from, from summary in chapter 3 to very specific examples of who Jesus is and exercise of divine power. Chapter 5 of Mark then gives us three stories of the Lord's miraculous intervention intended to reveal who Jesus is. Now, that's generally what the Gospels are for. They're actually answering the question, who is Jesus, really? I mean, if you, if you tried to boil down what to maybe one question what the, uh, what the Gospels are doing. But each passage then reveals something more about the answer to this question, some aspect of his identity to which we can respond. Now, our three interwoven stories take place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Do you see it there? To the left of the Sea of Galilee is Galilee, as you might expect. That's why they call it the Sea of Galilee. Okay. But on the right side, on the western shore, we have the Decapolis there in yellow and the Tetrarchy of Philip. I know the labels are, are, are much too large to fit on the screen, but that's not the, the geography isn't terribly important right now, and there won't be a test on this, so don't worry. But I just want to show you geographically where we are, because in chapter 5, all the stories, well, a lot of Jesus' ministry actually is centered around the Sea of Galilee. There's a lot of trips back and forth. There's a lot of stuff happening on the shore in the Gospel of Mark in particular. But in chapter 5, we've got one miracle on the western shore. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, 
Let's see, this is east, okay. All right, one, one miracle on the eastern shore there, uh, kind of on the border between the Decapolis and the Tetrarchy of Philip, Herod Philip, uh, whose wife was a real trouble. We'll find that in the next chapter. And then on the, on the left shore, kind of the northern side there, below the E's, below the double E of Galilee, on the shore there, Capernaum and Bethsaida is where we're going to find these other two miracles, somewhere in that general vicinity. And so it's the Sea of Galilee that weaves these three miracles together. Okay, so in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is the story of the demoniac. And then there's another uh, uh, piece to this, almost as long, slightly longer, three verses longer, uh, that actually interweaves the miracle of Jairus' daughter with the woman with a hemorrhage. And this is, we've seen this, we've seen Mark do this before. He'll interweave stories like this. It's one of his favorite techniques, actually. Um, now, in this particular case, this is probably how it happened. So the interweaving is pretty natural to the way you would tell the story. And yet, you have to remember that, that under the guidance of the Spirit, as these men wrote the Gospels, they had freedom to choose how they were going to decide to present the story. So the fact that Mark tells the story the way he does invites us to take a closer look. Now, I also want you to notice that the social status of the people involved is quite varied. There's the demoniac. He's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. And then there's Jairus, who is a, a synagogue official. He's one of the people in charge of, of keeping things running in the synagogue. He's called a synagogue ruler. Uh, <clears throat> and then there's this woman who is a social outcast for reasons we'll, we'll show you in a moment. But you see how Jesus treats each one of these people the same way. He rescues them. And so the message this morning, you know, before you fall asleep, if you're going to fall asleep here, I want you to get the message. Uh, if, you, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. Regardless of who you are, the only solution to any problem is Jesus, the King of God's kingdom who has power and authority to grant freedom. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, your race, your culture, your background, your social status, your economic status, whatever it is, the only solution to any problem is Jesus, the King of God's kingdom. Not only is, are you able to come to Jesus, He's the only one to whom you can come, ultimately. What we discover in this passage is that no problem has a human solution, ultimately. And so he's the only one to whom you can come in a world like the one we live in. Now, I want you to notice this as well. This is going to be the structure that we will will put on each miracle as we go through it. So we're going to change the, the order sometimes of the way we present some of the verses. But I wanted to go through each story and show you how they have common themes. And each one of these miracle stories in chapter 5 has a problem. 
That is, some kind of insurmountable, uh, uh, <clears throat> only God can intervene kind of problem. And then there's a delay. There's a delay to that solution to the problem, which actually is part of the problem. And, th and then there's an incredible rescue at the end, and it's aftermath. What does Jesus do through not only rescuing the person, but what, how does that person respond to that rescue? All right, so let's focus then on the demoniac, the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 20. Let's start with the demoniac's problem. What's his problem? Well, of course, he's got a problem with demons. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerizines, Mark tells us, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, uh, just I don't want to take long here, but there's some dispute as to the name and location of this place. But suffice it to say that it's somewhere here along the border between the Tetrarchy of Philip, Herod Philip. Herod Philip was one of Herod's sons who was given part of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, this territory to rule. His other brother, Herod Antipas, is going to figure into the next chapter. He's the king of Galilee, if you will, ironically enough. He's not really the king. And then there's the Decapolis. Now, I just, I'm pointing this out to you because people will often say, well, it doesn't matter that there were swine being raised over here. But the Decapolis originally was not part of Gentile territory. It was actually part of the tribal allotment here. You see this in, in purple here? That's the tribe of Manasseh. And then below that, the tribe of Gad and Naphtali over there uh, where Galilee is. Okay, so this is originally this territory where this story takes place, regardless of where it is, regardless of how far south you want to put it, is in territory that should belong to Israel. Can you hear the king coming back to reclaim his territory here and driving out those pigs? I mean, the Gentiles. So it's a place that's dominated by Gentiles in the current situation in exile, but it's one that Jesus is coming to rule in a way. He will one day physically rule it. Now, when he got out of the boat, verse 2 tells us, Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now, an unclean spirit is a demon. An actual spirit being, a fallen angel who participated in Satan's rebellion against God prior to human history. These are real. The man's condition, we simply cannot say, well, this guy is just mentally disturbed, so let's just call it a demon. You know how people talk about their addictions as being, oh, well, he struggled with his demons, and so on. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about metaphor for demons. We're talking about a real demon. This man is, uh, as the English would say, demon-possessed, or possessed of a demon. Have you heard that expression, old, old English expression, possessed of a demon? Meaning possessed by a demon, that is, under the control of a demon, we're going to find out it's not just one. Uh, <clears throat> and though invisible, these creatures are very real. They are but creatures, however. 
And Jesus, the king, has the power to command them to do whatever he would like them to do, and they must obey. Isn't that great? Jesus has landed in enemy territory, if you will, and this is the start of something wonderful. Seeing Jesus from a distance, verse 6 tells us. Now skip, the, uh, skip uh, for a moment down to verse 6. I don't want to interrupt the action of the story here. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Kind of put that on the back burner, bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, the demoniac, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. Okay, this is when I need John to turn the, the reverb and the delay up, you know, so that I can say, my name is Legion, for we are many, we are many, we are many, we are many, you know, something like that. But um, no, I'm not, not going to do that, but wouldn't that be great? Uh, but you know what we discover in verse 9 is the depth of this man's problem. It's not just one demon, it's a legion of demons. He's under the tyrannical domination of an army of demons. This is a Roman loan word, as you probably know, the word legion. And uh, <clears throat> it's an army unit in the, in the Roman army. By the, by the reign of Augustus Caesar, who was the Roman emperor when Jesus was born, there were 25 standing legions in the Roman order of battle, if you will. We won't quibble over the number of people, you know, paper strength and auxiliaries and so on, support units. That's all, you know, that's all interesting stuff, and I'm really glad I took that Roman history course. It's not relevant to the, to the passage. I wish I could teach you everything about Roman legions, too. But each one is, is commanded by a, a general officer, you know, a guy who has to be appointed by the Senate. So just suffice it to say, if there's a legion in control of this guy, it's like a big chunk of the Roman army has just descended on, on this guy. So to call it a legion uh, doesn't really emphasize the number so much, the exact number so much as is the depth of his problem. The, the, the depth of his problem is that he is crushed, completely overwhelmed by the tyranny of these evil creatures. And so that's the demoniac's problem. He is completely under the, under the domination of Satan and his minions. Now, there's a delay for this man. He's got an unsolvable problem, but compounding the problem is the delay, what I'm going to call the delay. The delay is whatever intervening time period there is between the onset of the problem and the rescue that Jesus brings. This is why I had uh, James chapter 1 read, because the emphasis as we're looking at this text, and how, how do we apply a demon possession? How do we apply uh, an exorcism to our lives today? It's not like every week you, you know, run into somebody who has a legion of demons. 
But the point is that the delay is compounding the problem. This man has been under the domination of these demons for a long time. And sooner or later, we're all going to experience the delay, aren't we? Not that we'll be under demon influence or domination. That's not what I mean. But when your problem comes and you pray about it, and then you pray about it again, you pray about it again, and it's just the problem hangs on. What we're supposed to learn from this passage is hang on. <laughs> okay, Hang on longer than your problem because your rescue is coming. And there's a sense in which as the early church is reading this, they're waiting for Jesus to come back, right? Hey, so are we. Remember? This is how you tell how close Jesus is. He's five seconds closer now. You ready? Okay. So there's, in other words, there's nothing that's going to that's gonna tell you uh, whether Jesus is closer to coming back or not. Okay? Any moment now, the order could be given and the, the real invasion is going to begin. Okay? So D-Day is going to happen. Okay? Should we call it L-Day instead of the Lord, the day of the Lord? Maybe. But you see, we're, we're in the midst of a delay too. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And in the meantime, our world is dominated by the forces of evil. Not just the forces of evil like Star Wars forces of evil, not the dark side of the force. What I'm talking about is the, the ongoing spiritual warfare that's happening behind the scenes. In this passage, we see the curtain slid back for just a moment. And we see its ugly face. But there's one ultimate solution for this man's problem just as there is for the delay that we have, that we are experiencing. So the delay is one of scale. We don't know how long this man was in this condition, but here's how, how far-reaching it is for him. He had his dwelling, verse 3 says, go back to verse 3, See, Mark interrupts his narrative of the action of the story to tell you about what this, this man's background is. He had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. The implication is they've tried and they can't do it. It used to work. The human solution used to work, but now it doesn't. Because... Verse 4 says, He had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Repeated attempts at restraint had failed. And his physical strength had grown, augmented by the presence of these demons. Some people call it supernatural strength. Other, other people call it preternatural strength, to be precise because he doesn't have divine power. That's super, that would be supernatural. Anyway, whatever it is, he's stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger was when he was taking steroids, okay? Before he was governor of California, right? He's stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's stronger than any other heavyweight champion. He probably didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he could just break chains like uh, melted butter. In Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter uh, 8 as well, Matthew 8, 28, in the parallel passage says he was extremely violent. He was one of two demoniacs there. 
And no one could go this way anymore. Can you imagine? You know, don't go that way. The demoniacs over there. Man. So his violence as well. He hates people. He doesn't want to be around people. He lives in the tombs where no one's going to bother him. And now he's been there for months, years. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us exactly how long. But it sure says that things are uh, going from bad to worse for him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He's a danger not only to others, but a danger to himself. That's probably why they were trying to restrain him. He was gashing himself with stones. Gashing oneself with stones is a, is a, uh, it's a hallmark of pagan religion. Uh, it may be a hallmark of his fear of himself, his, lo- his self-loathing. But I don't want to get too psychological here because it, this isn't a psychological problem primarily. This is a demonic problem. Let me reassure you, though, before we move farther here, that no believer in Jesus Christ can be possessed by a demon. The Spirit lives within us. We have been marked as His, as, his, as Jesus's. We belong to Him, and since the Spirit dwells in us and our bodies are a temple, each individually a sanctuary for Jesus, there's no way a demon can enter in. So have no fear. You can be influenced by the doctrines of demons. All you need to do is turn on the news these days. Okay, You can be influenced by their doctrines, but you cannot be taken over by the way this man was. And the solution for him, like anyone else who is demon-influenced, demon-possessed, is salvation through Jesus Christ. So we've seen the depth of his problem. We've seen the length of his problem that has compounded the issue for him. And now we come to the rescue. Rescue is God's deliverance through Jesus. Now, God does not do things in this world apart from Jesus and apart from His Word. And so, for the people in our world, in this world, the world of the story, for them, the rescue is the immediate resolution of their troubles and the possession of eternal life. This doesn't mean, of course, that this man never had any more troubles. Okay. Uh, and ultimately, the rescue becomes one of resurrection. This man passed away, eventually. He's not still alive, but he's awaiting the resurrection of Jesus, just as we are. We wait for the complete rescue promised by our Lord's return. But the rescue is spectacular here. This is a captive set free. Now, I want to go back for a moment to Mark chapter 3, verse 27. You remember when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the, the ruler of demons? Chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus says, uh-uh, no, that's not what this is. This is a rescue mission. He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. He's saying, the strong man, that's Satan. 
I'm the stronger man. I've wrestled him to the ground, and now I'm going to take his stuff. And Satan's stuff, the world in which we live in, I'm going to take his gear. I'm going to take all of his possessions. That's all the people that he is oppressing. So here's Jesus in Mark 3.27 saying, this is the purpose, one of the purposes for which I came. And now in chapter 5, we're seeing it worked out in our particular example of the demon-possessed man <clears throat> on, the western, uh, on the eastern shore of Galilee. Now, verse 10, And they began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, it could be he, could be they. Uh, Greek students, you remember that uh, a neuter plural subject uh, takes a singular verb. Does that ring a bell? Okay, well, Alex, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway. <laughs> neuter plural subject, the demons, singular verb. And so the problem for the translator in, in verse 10 is, is this the man who's imploring or is this the demons? Hmm, I think the answer is yes. Okay, so in other words, they had so taken over his personality. Now, I'm not making the point from the Greek grammar. It's not like singular, you know, neuter plural subject, singular verb. That's, a, you know, that's an overtake of personality. No, what I'm talking about is the, there's this distortion in the air. You know, if, you're, if I were filming the movie here, it would be, you know, the guy would be speaking, but it would be the demon speaking you know, in him, and, and it would be great. The special effects would be fantastic. <laughs> well, now, Mark stops for just a second to give you a piece of background information that you need to understand the rest of the story, and that's verse 11. He says, now, there was this herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And you go, uh-oh, this doesn't look good. <laughs> uh, swine in Israel? Hmm, something's dreadfully wrong here. So there's this, this herd of pigs there in verse 11. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Now we don't know really why they make this request, but the, the parallel passages as we look at those seem to imply the demons don't want to be sent into the abyss, into the depth, if you will, the, the abyss being the place where demons will go when Jesus comes back and all of this is set right, the lake of fire and, and everything related to that, their final eternal prison, if you will, is where they don't want to be sent. And ironically enough, they're about to be sent into the deep of the lake. Okay, so there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a, uh, a parable, a living parable going on here, pun going on here. So rather than being sent out of the man to, to go wherever it is that they're supposed to go, they want to remain in that part of the country. So he says, they ask, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And so Jesus allowed it. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, just a note about the 2,000 here. If someone were making this story up, they would, they would have said, well, there were about 5,000 of them because that's the number of people in a legion, right? Okay, so the fact that, that Mark doesn't make up stuff to go along with the legion number tells you that he's just telling you the facts of the story. He's got the history of it correct. There's about 2,000 of them. Now, 2,000 swine, 
2,000 pigs, now you think about how big some of, some of these pigs, I don't know how big these pigs were. Uh, they didn't have steroids to feed them or human growth hormone or anything like that. So, so uh, I, I don't know how big these are, but that's quite a lot of pigs. Okay, so I don't know how much they got per pound. You know, is it a denarius per pound? Who knows? But uh, that is quite a financial loss for somebody involved. They were drowned in the sea. Now, <clears throat> here's the picture uh, right about where the swine dive took place uh, here. You can almost imagine them rushing down the, the bank. Today, there's a, there's a pomegranate uh, orchard there. You can go visit there. They, they'll say, so surely this is a, a, an economic loss for somebody. Can you see the pig here? here we go. Uh, that's, that was a stand-in prop here. Uh, if I had the budget, I could have edited that out. And, oh, well, anyway. Uh, so there has been the suggestion that this, this was a meat supply for the Roman army. You know, so it's kind of like getting back at the occupation forces by destroying their supplies. Uh, I don't, you know, Mark doesn't go into that. So, we, you know, we can only speculate. And uh, I, I have a fun time sometimes speculating about some of these kinds of things. But this spectacular destruction of the herd is visible proof of the man's healing. He's a, he has a spectacular problem, and it needs a spectacular solution so that people will recognize what's happened. Okay? So <clears throat> we have all kinds of moral problems. How could Jesus have killed those innocent pigs? You know, or how could Jesus have caused an economic loss? Well, hey, look, this is Israel. You shouldn't be raising pigs here anyway. Okay, so, anyway, just saying, you know, oh, 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 by the way, the pigs would have been killed anyway because they were being raised for food. Uh, well, anyway, so the fact that they're dead does not matter to Mark. He doesn't even say anything. Jesus doesn't say anything about it. Well, I'm sorry, I'll just, I'll have to pay you back for this one. He, he just, he moves on. Who cares, Mark says. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Probably, <laughs> probably with fear and trembling, they're going, you know, that guy was out there. He, you know, he beat anyone up who came by, you know, running around naked here, beating people up, breaking chains and whatever. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. Wow. After so long, after this extended problem, this delay, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. You can, just, you can see them reenacting. And they began to implore him, hey, they said, gee, thanks, Jesus. We're really glad you've restored this path to us down to the, down to the side of the lake. You know, now we can travel with freedom, and, and uh, we're really glad to hear about the gospel. No, that's not what they said. Jesus cast out the demons, and they want to cast him out. They began to implore him to leave their region. Well, that's exactly what the demons didn't want to do. So it's, it's almost like Mark is playing this up. It's like, you cast the demons out, and we'll cast you out. Okay, this is usually what Jesus gets, though, right? He'll perform a healing, he'll perform a miracle, he'll say something to somebody that could give them life, and they'll say, ah, never mind. Get out of here. 
right? It's probably it's it was probably the uh, the swine herders uh, uh, union who uh, was behind this request. Uh, who knows the, the the association of swine uh, raisers or something like that? You know, is ruining their economic gain. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Now, this, there's an element to this story that, that you're seeing here in the, in the case of the man. That's, it's kind of underplayed, but you can see his faith here. Because he wants to be with Jesus the way the disciples are. And Jesus didn't let him, it says in the next verse. But he said to him, go to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Verse 20 ends the story with, he, began, he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. He's the first missionary. He's the first guy that Jesus has sent out into Gentile territory. And he says, I was blind, but now I can see. No, that's not that story. I, I was demon-possessed, and now I'm not. But you see what I mean. In other words, there's this change that's happened, and he's explaining to them why. Here's the gospel. That Israelite king came over here and rescued me, a Gentile. Wow. No matter who you are, the gospel is for you. So he's the first Gentile missionary, if you will. Perhaps not the first, but one of the first. And so now Jesus heads back across the lake to its western shore to, uh, to Bethsaida or Capernaum. We're not sure exactly where here. Mark doesn't tell us. And when Jesus crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. Okay. I can just hear the, uh, the Israelite news. <clears throat> 2,000 swine dead, film at 11, right? You know, so, so people had heard about this, and they were going to you know, just gather around Jesus and uh, here they are on the other side. And now let's talk about the woman. I'm, I'm going to uh, skip forward to the woman's problem first. And then we'll talk about Jairus and his daughter. Her chronic flow of blood is her problem. Verse 25 says, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Wow, that's a problem. Because, uh, let me just give you a background for just a moment about this. Uh, Leviticus 15, now I'm just going to quote you one verse out of Leviticus 15. But uh, Leviticus has a lot to do with whether you are clean or unclean in a ritual sense. That is, uh, able to participate in temple worship. Okay. Now, now, there's a connection, but it's not always there between unclean and sin. Okay, so here I, I think there's not that connection here. This is just ritually unclean. And it says, Leviticus 15.25 says, If a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. They say, isn't that harsh? Well, <clears throat> no. But uh, we don't have time to get into why that's not harsh. Just trust me. Um, 
this is God's way of protecting His people and the sanctity of, his, uh, of the worship at the temple at the time. Now, this is the problem for the woman. Now, I just want to point out why we're talking about unclean. Numbers 19, verse 11 says, The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. Unclean meaning can't participate in temple worship. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is that Jesus is going to touch a corpse later. And he's just been in contact, not perhaps close physical contact, but he's been near somebody who has touched corpses or been in danger of touching corpses. So we have running through this chapter 5, we have the problem of clean and unclean. And what's, what is so remarkable about this is that under normal circumstances, someone who is unclean who touches somebody who is clean doesn't become clean. You with me here? If I'm unclean and I touch you, you become unclean. Right? And then if they touch two friends and they touch two friends, you know, you've got a problem and no one can come to temple. Right? Okay, so, so this is why clean and unclean are so important to them. And this is why this, this problem and its solution is so remarkable. So the woman's delay, let's think about this for a moment, 12 years. Her 12-year-long horror, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. She had spent all she had had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Now, Luke, who is a physician himself, leaves that bit out. <laughs> it's funny in the, in, the, uh, in the parallel passage. But now, let me just point out that, that this is not against physicians. Okay? She, Mark is not saying, doctors, uh, <laughs> they can't do a thing. All right? What he's saying is that the woman hadn't received relief. Okay? So it's not the doctor's fault. It's God's fault, if you will. God caused the delay to put her in just this position for just this day when Jesus would walk by and she would touch him. In her case, physicians had failed her. In her case, the human solution had failed her. Now, um, you, some people might point to, to 2 Chronicles 16 and say, well, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, and yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. So seeking physicians is bad. It's a human solution. You say, well, wait a minute. It says he did not seek the Lord, but instead he sought the physicians. It doesn't say he sought the Lord and he sought physicians. You with me here? All right. So you got a, you got a physical problem. If it has a physical solution, go to the doctor. But pray about it too. The doctor isn't the only solution, but prayer isn't the only solution. You know, it's kind of like the joke about the guy who dies in the flood and, and God says, well, I sent you a, a helicopter and two boats, you know. What do you do? All right, so Mark's problem is not with the physicians, but he's telling you about the woman's problem. It's gone on and on. She's tried to do something about it. So an intractable problem, a, a difficult delay, and then this spectacular, incredible rescue. A life and reputation restored. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Here's an expression of faith. A, a bit magical, if you will. A bit undeveloped. But Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our theology right, does he? 
before he acts. So even though she's misguided in how her faith works, she, at least she has some faith. Immediately, it says, the flow of blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now the demons had been afflicting this man. She is healed from her affliction. The struggle is over and she's aware of it right then. The only problem is no one else would be aware of it. You see, she's declared publicly you know, unclean. This is why she avoids coming up in front of him in front of the crowd because she realizes that everyone knows that she's unclean so she just kind of slips into the crowd. Excuse me, excuse me, pardon me. Don't know you're unclean, but anyway. She touches Jesus and suddenly she's made well. That doesn't happen except if you're touching the king. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? You know, what does that feel like? I don't know. Is it like static electricity? What happened? Who touched me? Um, he accepts her undeveloped faith as faith. But he says, who touched my garments? Because he has to restore her reputation now. And his disciples said to him, human viewpoint here, common sense, oh, look at the crowd, come on. You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? What? Jesus, what's your problem? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. Probably looked past her several times, kind of, But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The demon fell down before him. The demon-possessed man falls down before him. The woman falls down before him. And just a moment earlier, Jairus had fallen down before him. Each of these people here come to Jesus with their problem. She told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Blessing. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Now the pun here in Greek is made you well. Uh, some, some translations will read, your faith has saved you. See, salvation, so being saved from your disease is being made well. That's why we translate it, your faith has made you well. So there's two things going on here. You needed a solution to your medical problem, your physical problem, but you also need a solution to your spiritual problem, and that is the need of salvation. Now, we saw that, that uh, each one has had a problem, a delay, and a rescue. Let's do that with Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter is on the verge of death. There's your problem. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. There it is again. Verse 22. Verse 23. And implored him earnestly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Get well, be saved. And live. See the pun going on here? Mark is working it. Now, little daughter, he has this affection for her. This 12-year-old daughter we find later in the passage. 
And Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing in on him. So there's the problem. And he says, come with me. Oh, wow, thank you, Jesus. Here he is coming with him, and suddenly the delay happens. We've got a crisis. And then the delay comes. Wait a minute, she's about to die. Come on, you've had this problem for 12 years. <laughs> Can you imagine this man who, who's, who uh, is going up and down emotionally, finally comes to Jesus, his emotions soar. He's saying, oh, finally, you know, I'm going to get some salvation here. But then the woman's healing intrudes. Couldn't, couldn't this just wait until later, Jesus? Like, you know who she is now. Can't we just go? Because the problem goes from bad to worse. Not just from bad to worse, but from emergency to tragedy. Because verse 35 says, he was still speaking. They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Here's the human solution again. Oh, Jesus is this great healer. He can cast out demons. He can heal people. But no one can raise the dead. Right? No one's ever heard of the dead being raised. Well, actually they had. You know, Elijah did it a couple of times. They don't understand the extent of Jesus' ability. They don't understand that even though the problem has gotten worse that Jesus can still deal with it. Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Verse 36. See, Jesus is expecting from each person in these, in these three healing incidents, he's expecting faith. He says, Don't worry about that, just trust me. Trust me that everything is going to be okay. Just like he said to the woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's very interesting, too, just we ought to notice here. You see how Jesus calls the woman daughter? The next verse, it's Jairus' daughter who's in the problem. Jairus now needs to exercise faith as the delay on him has imposed a crisis. And so we come to the rescue of this miracle. An intractable problem, a, a, a difficult delay, and then an incredible rescue. Saved from death's clutches. Watch how he does this. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. This is the inner circle of the 12 disciples. This is the inner circle who get to travel with Jesus. They're the ones who have the special insight here. This is the same group of disciples that he takes with him up onto the mountain for the transfiguration. And I think Mark has recorded this detail to, to foreshadow what's going to happen later. Why just these three? Well, it's the same thing that happens with the transfiguration. He came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Okay, weeping, wailing, she's dead. Okay, they're weeping and wailing while, she's, while they're waiting for her to get better. She's dead. 
That's why they're weeping and wailing. This is what you do when someone dies. You come and you weep and you wail outside the house. And as he was entering in, he said to them, Why should you make a commotion and weep? This child has not died, but is asleep. He's not denying the reality of the problem, by the way. He's not saying, oh, she's not really dead. What he's saying is, listen, I'm the king of the coming kingdom. I'm the one who gives life and power and freedom. And so when it comes to a problem even like death, this is no problem. Raising people from the dead is just like waking them up from sleep. This is no problem. So your human solution, your human thinking about this, your limitation of what God can do in this situation isn't helping. This is why he asks them the question. They began laughing at him, just like the, the swine herders, just like the townspeople across the lake. Get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you here. Gee, thanks. I cast out thousands of demons and this is the thanks I get. Uh, and even the disciples, you know, hey, look, uh, you know, there's this crowd here. Why would you say, who touched me? What's your problem, Jesus? Right? So even the disciples have, have difficulty with what Jesus is doing. But here they are laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, these three guys, and he entered the room where the child was. Now, Mark is recalling perhaps from Peter's direction. Peter is one of the people who's in the room when this happens. And the vividness of this still sticks in Peter's mind as he tells Mark about this. And Mark gives us the exact words spoken on the occasion. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, a talit, a talita is not little girl. A talit is a lamb or a goat, okay? So a kid, right? Kid. So talita is the kid. Hey, kid, get up. But it's not a disparaging, hey, kid, go away, you bother me. You know, it's, it's more like, hey, kiddo, come on, get up. And the way Mark translates it, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Same kind of thing. Hey, little lady, come on, just get up. Wake up. Come on. This endearing affection for her. You know, Jairus said, my little daughter. See, Jesus, Jesus knows about this, and he has compassion on your problem. He has compassion for Jairus. So he says, hey, kiddo, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk because she was 12 years old. So she's not an infant. In other words, this isn't sudden infant death syndrome. This girl has been alive. She's been a part of the family. Her father loves her dearly. And now she's dead. But no, Jesus has raised her. She was about 12 years old. And immediately you go, 12 years. Hmm, sounds familiar. Where did I see that before? Oh, yeah, the woman had this hemorrhage for 12 years. So somewhere around the time when this little girl was born, this woman's problem began. You see how intertwined the stories are, not just in how they happen, but how God orchestrated the delay. Isn't that amazing? 
And immediately they were completely astounded. Now, uh, one last thing as we, as we try to bring this story to a close and, and apply it. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something to eat should be given to her. The instruction to silence appears in other places. Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody. You know, and they, usually they, 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 they don't follow what he says. You know, usually they go out and they publish the, the problem, and this is why Jesus has this rock star kind of following, at least for now. Uh, the exception has been the, the Gerizim demoniac who he said, go tell everyone what I did for you. But here, I think what Mark is doing for you is he's foreshadowing, like I said earlier, what's going to happen when they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, when these three disciples are there and they see his glory. And he tells them in Mark 9, 9, don't tell anyone about this until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So the... the uh, the implication you're to draw from this as the reader of Mark is, oh, Jesus has power over death, and this is going to be related to his own resurrection as well. Now, there's a practical implication, too, of what he says. I think it's probably mostly to give him and his three disciples time to just clear out before the news suddenly spreads, because there's no way they're going to keep this, this secret, right? The girl's going to get up the next day and be out there playing in the yard. Weren't you the one who was dead? What? Tell me, what happened? You know, there's no way they're going to keep a lid on this. So I think what Jesus is doing is saying, don't tell anyone yet. Let us get, you know, some distance from the house before the, the, the news of this gets out. Okay, so I'm going to hit you with the message statement again. Regardless of who you are, no matter what your social standing is, no matter your race, your culture, your, your economic status, whatever it is, the only solution to any problem you have is Jesus, the king of God's kingdom who has the power and the authority to give you freedom, like freedom from demon possession, freedom from illness, and freedom from death. And so Jesus is the rescuing king who saves. This passage is inviting us to do this. You come to Jesus with your problem. And your problem is one in which you've perhaps already prayed. And there's a delay. God is waiting, it seems. God is not listening to you, sometimes you might say, in a moment of weakness. But there's a reason for the delay, and that is to enhance God's reputation when the rescue finally comes. So hang on in your trust as you wait for the answer. Come to Jesus with your problem and hang on. The way James says, persevere in your faith. Because the fact that he has not answered does not mean that he is not going to answer. It just means he has not answered yet. Now, for some problems... Only the resurrection will be the solution. Only when Jesus comes back will that problem be solved. So many of the problems that we have as a human race can only be solved when Jesus the King rules from the capital of a worldwide empire with Jerusalem as its capital. 
But hang on in the meantime because the answer will come. Sometimes it's in the form of restoration. Sometimes it's in the form of healing. And other times it's in the form of His grace being sufficient to carry you through while you continue to wait. So come to Jesus with your problem, believing that He will solve it, and hang on in your trust as you wait for the answer. Let's pray. Father, we're ever so grateful that you have given us this passage to show us how you can solve any problem and every problem. And though we might have to wait until Jesus returns for every problem to be solved, we ask, Father, in the midst of our struggle and the depth of our problems and the delay that we're experiencing, that we will hang on and hear your voice as we are carried through. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.